The Muslim students at a Hong Kong school who were threatened with demerits unless they shaved their beards. The school later backtracked after religious leaders pointed out the significance of beards for Muslims. But it's not the first time religious practices have come into conflict with school regulations in Hong Kong. Female Muslim students at another school have previously complained about not being allowed to wear headscarves. So are some schools in Hong Kong lacking cultural sensitivity? Do we need a law against religious discrimination? Or should non-religious schools be free to set their own rules? Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. Email us at backchat at RTHKIHK. Or give us a call. The number there, 233-88266. Later in the program after 9.40, we're going to be talking about yesterday's light rail collision, the second such case in two months. And at the end of the program, around 9.55, Jamie Clark will join us to tell us the latest on the Asian Games. But first to our main topic, our guests uh, in discussion this morning. We are joined initially in our Queensway studio by Azan Marwa, Hong Kong barrister, uh, who previously campaigned for Sikh lawyers to keep their turbans. And on the phone, we are joined by Mervyn Chung, regular backchat guest. Uh, Mervyn Chung is the chair of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Organisation. And we're joined from Japan uh, by uh, uh, Edward Vickers. Edward Vickers is Professor of uh, Comparative Education at Kyushu University. Good morning. Welcome to uh, Backchat. Uh, Azan Marwa, um, let's, let's go to you first. Um, uh, this, this latest incident, it was a school in Tin Shui Wai, and uh, they, the, the, the Muslim students there, uh, they had repeated <coughs> requests from teachers, basically saying they would be punished if they didn't shave their beards. And eventually they um, asked the imam to... Um, uh, to, uh, to get involved, and the school now says it was a misunderstanding, but it's not the first time we've had these kind of quote-unquote misunderstandings in Hong Kong, is it, right? Uh, no, I regret to agree with you that that's, it's not the first time. I certainly have heard of other cases, particularly those involving uh, women wearing headscarves, including teachers at schools. Um, and it is, uh, I won't say it's motivated by animus towards um, uh, any particular minority. It's generally driven, in my experience, by ignorance and um, and confusion. And how much, when these, I think the headscarf cases are more common, aren't they? I mean, there was, there have been cases, there was a case at another school a couple of years ago where um, the students were told that wearing um, their headscarves um, was unsanitary and unhygienic. Um, when these sort of cases, I mean, this latest one seems to have been resolved fairly easily, but when these cases arise, normally, are they easy to resolve, or why, why don't more of the, I've been one or two complaints to the Equal Opportunities Commission, but why, why don't more of these cases end up sort of at the Equal Opportunities Commission? Well, I, that's a bigger problem to do with uh, oh, we'll come to the, legal <laughs> the effectiveness of the EOC. <laughs> uh, but um, people who, uh, who are involved, they don't necessarily know that at that stage. So, I mean, it's... Well, I don't think that's actually true. Um, there are... I mean, there, there's a reason why the EOC exists. Uh, there's a reason why we have these, this legislation. Um, pe but people know what they're facing in front of them, and nobody wants to lose their job. Nobody wants to be vilified or ostracized. So there, there's, a, a, if you like, a systemic built-in um, discouragement or disincentive for people to raise these sorts of concerns. We we have in this um, we have on the line Mervyn Chern. I have a question for him. And he, Mervyn is the chairman of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Organization. So so Mervyn, I just want to wind back a bit. Could you exp um, could you explain um, the underlying 
and I want to go, want to go back to the underlying the, the incident. Could you explain the underlying considerations or objectives that a typical school might want to achieve with their school regulations in, in a normal non-religious context? And, and the reason I'm asking is I think it's important to first understand those objectives before we take a look at the reasonableness of any student, um, student request to uh, an exception to the general rule. Well, I think, uh, of course, uh, schools themselves might have uh, different objectives in um, in passing this kind of uh, passing and also uh, implementing this kind of uh, school regulations regarding um, school uniform and also the outer appearance of uh, of uh, their students. And uh, in general, um, maybe um, the school is trying to keep the schools uh, is trying to keep the whole school appearing to be disciplined. Uh, tidy and presentable, and uh, appearing to the public as well, uh, having a good uh, image. And, and of course, uh, there, there might be uh, other reasons which are subject to some kind of uh, open discussion. Uh, the school may, may also be uh, looking for some kind of physical safety for their students. Uh, in this case, uh, moustaches and enlocibrius might hinder the effective conduct of uh, lab experiments. It, it, uh, well, it's, it's so quoted uh, at times. But anyway, um, no matter what the reason is, the kind of um, inclusiveness and also sensitivity to different cultures and religions uh, must be very carefully considered in formulating and implementing um, school regulations regarding the uh, the our appearance and also the uniforms of the students. Now, Hong Kong is a multicultural society committed to equality. And our school children are from a diverse range of uh, backgrounds and a different needs. And uh, schools, after all, are at the heart of their holistic education and overall development, uh, promoting social progress and uh, ensuring a sense of equality and justice for our future generations. So... And of course, the school uniforms and the, and the related rules are generally legitimate, as, as our barrister also on, on the discussion panel will tell us more. Uh, but in some instances, they may affect children's equality rights. So schools have to have to be appropriately sensitive uh, on 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 matters relating to um, uniforms and and also the 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 the, uh, the appearance styles of, of their of the students in the minorities groups. So anytime when the school reviews it, uh, school unit, uh, the uniform rules, it should involve members of the specific religious and social community and typically account of the need to respect uh, specific uh, religious beliefs and, 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 and community uh, 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 conventions. And an inclusive and transparent process to promote open discussion. And if they have a reason to impose a certain restriction, like in this case, it's allowing the student to keep their beers. And I think the reason should be clearly articulated. And this would not only help the pupils and parents understand the situation, but also allow the school to examine the issue from a more objective angle. 
Okay, we're discussing the issue of religious sensitivity in Hong Kong schools on the back of uh, reports that uh, uh, students at uh, a, um, a, a school in uh, Tin Shui Wai, uh, Muslim students, were asked to, um, uh, to, to remove their beards or risk the merits. You just heard uh, Mervyn Cheung from the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Organisation. Uh, if you've got any thoughts, do email us at backchat.rthk.hk or you can go to our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free, and comment there. Several comments coming in from listeners already, we'll get to them shortly. Uh, but now let's uh, for sort of so far we've been talking from the Hong Kong perspective but maybe for a slightly broader perspective let's bring in Professor Edward Vickers Professor Vickers from the uh, Professor of Comparative Education at uh, Kyushu University. Uh, good morning uh, Professor Vickers, thank you for joining us Yeah, morning, yeah, right. thank you for having me on. Well, I mean these kind of debates and these kind of issues are not confined to um, Hong Kong, and what do you make of um, these incidents in Hong Kong and how can we sort of compare them with what's happening in other countries? Well, I mean, first of all, I think it's it's encouraging uh, that you know to hear the comments from uh, you know your your first two interviewees, and um, you know it may be rather boring for the purposes of your program, but you're probably going to get all three of us basically agreeing. Oh, we'll on, try, we'll try and put a stop you know, to that. <laughs> what should happen uh, in such cases? Um, I mean, within the East Asian context. Um, I mean, I think the nature of the comments you're hearing reflects that, at least as regards um, the treatment of pupils from different religious backgrounds, um, different cultural backgrounds in, in local schools, Hong Kong is relatively uh, tolerant. Um, uh, I mean, here in Japan, I think the, the uh, uniform requirements are relatively strict. Um, yeah, tell us although, what, what would happen in Japan. I mean, if a Muslim student turned up wearing a beard in a, a Japanese, I mean, there must be some. I, mean, I know Japan is sort of, there's far more, there's far, far fewer minorities, but uh, there must be some. If they turned up wearing a beard or a woman. Uh, well, you, you, yeah, wearing, you're putting you know? me on the spot there. I mean, <laughs> the honest response is, I don't know. I, I mean, I've not. Um, I should have looked into this before this program, but uh, I, it would vary from region to region in Hong Kong, but I, in, sorry, in Japan. Um, but I do think that, uh, you, you know, the, the perhaps the more fundamental problem than regulations here in Japan, and this relates to, to what uh, your first speaker from the Muslim Council was saying, is, is not so much animus as uh, was sort of anti-Muslim or sort of anti um uh, you know, foreign animus, uh, but ignorance, um, uh, because you know the visibility of minorities of all sorts here in Japan uh, is very low, uh, and so outside, certainly outside major cities like Tokyo or like Fukuoka, where I am now, I think um, you might well find incidents like the one we're, we're discussing in in Tinshuai. Um, largely because teachers are not familiar with um, the, the, the sort of precepts of different religions of different cultures. Uh, I think perhaps that's the sort of fundamental issue. Danny? All yes, right, go on. I, uh, this is as, 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 as Omawa. Please. Yeah, all right, if I chime in here, I, as much as I, I agree with a lot of what's been said, I, I, I beg to differ with Mervyn. Um, I don't think these restrictions were about lab experiments or about 
discipline, not really. They, they were about preconceived notions uh, and, and, as I say, about ignorance. Because I, I, know, I, know, Sikh, I know Sikh doctors, surgeons, who, who wear long hair and have, and have beards. It does not interfere with, uh, with surgery. It does not interfere with lab experiments. But the assumption in people's heads uh, that this is aberrant, this is different. Um, it, 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 uh, perhaps discipline is the right word. The expectation that people will con uh, will conform to certain uh, conventions, and then the production of these uh, after the fact justifications, um, such as the the one which I, I find particularly disturbing about uh, keeping long hair not being good for your ha health, or having uh, hair covering not good for your for for. Uh, the the health of the community. I mean, it's just it's it's nonsense. Uh, I don't say it's motivated by animus, uh, as I've said before, but but it is a justification after the fact. We fear what we don't understand, and when we don't understand, we we tend to come up with these uh, nonsensical, if I may say, justifications. Okay, we're now joined by a fourth guest, uh, Rizwan Ula. Rizwan Ula is uh, vice principal of the uh, Lorting Pong Secondary School. Uh, uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to Back Chat. Good morning, everyone. Um, so we we were saying before. The, you, you joined us. I mean, the, 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 this, this latest incident was a school in Tinshawai, but these incidents they do they they happen fairly regularly. It's not just a one-off thing. I mean, what what is the fundamental problem here? Why, why do these incidents keep keep cropping up? Well, I think probably uh, there are a few uh, factors which result in uh, these kind of instances popping up uh, now and then. I think one of uh, the reason is probably uh, because. Uh, the cultural awareness is uh, low, and uh, that's why schools might sometimes, you know, uh, uh, follow their current policies or rules, and without having any accommodation for students that they accept, where they have these some uh, cultural or religious practices which the school could have incorporated. And in this uh, case, particular, I, uh, I think uh, the school received a letter from the. Uh, uh, a local Muslim council association, and then uh, they work on, on it afterwards. So that was the uh, situation. And if you look at, uh, in particular, in this case, we know that, you know, religion is not a uh, protected characteristic under the RDO. Uh, but if certain requirement or condition that has uh, impact on the religious practices of, uh, you know, certain religious groups, in this case, a Muslim student, then if they feel being detrimented, uh, then this will be a reason uh, for uh, indirect discrimination. Therefore, you know, it's very important for schools to understand that, uh, uh, like we understand, like school policies uh, are there for certain reasons, you know, such as for health, cleanliness or appropriacy. But to avoid this sort of discrimination, schools should you know, adopt an inclusive and transparent procedures when formulating rules. And schools should be open to sit down with students from time to time, review the policies and see how they can be more inclusive. When we are talking about an inclusive campus uh, in Hong Kong or being a cosmopolitan city. So that's just, uh, uh, my take on this. Um, I, I totally agree what, with what everyone is saying that that behind all of this is not Islamophobia. It's, it's, more, um, it's more ignorance. Um, generally. Um, however, I, I am sympathetic to the schools and teachers because religious freedom is a fundamental right enjoyed in Hong Kong and is protected by the basic law and 
other relevant legislation. And, and we do have, as a matter of fact, a diverse range of religious groups in Hong Kong. Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Sikhism, Judaism, for example. So, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and both Mer Mervyn, um, who is the uh, chairman of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern um, uh, organization and and um, and and others ha, ha, and Rizwan Ola have, have made reference to the need to have a you know uh, it's not really an issue I, I think hearing the guests about beards or headscarves or other types of religious garments but more about whether or not there is an inclusive and transparent process within a school to consider to consider you know any any deviations from the general rule. Let's ask, uh, yeah, Rizwan Ula, did you, do, do you think that there should be that kind of inclusive and transparent process? Uh, well, definitely, because when you have rules in schools, when you have rules, you are actually not, uh, the rules are not formulated to punish students. Rather, you know, these rules are to make students more uh, self-regulated and they're able to manage themselves in the process. And again, uh, from time to time, you know, school has to review the rules and regulations and make necessary accommodation and consensus building with different stakeholders like parents, the school sponsoring body, uh, the community. It's a lot of things. In this case, when you are dealing with uh, ethnic minorities, like Muslims, they have beards, and then the girls, they have scarves, and then when you have Indian students who are Sikh origin, they have turbans, they wear the bracelet. All these things you need to make accommodation if you don't have it in the rules. But you, need, you, you have to work out a policy where you would accommodate these sort of things rather than, you know, uh, uh, go strict to punishing the students. I'm, I'm also sympathetic to the, to the school in a sense that, uh, you know, maybe the school has this policy, but then when it comes to, uh, to the interpretation or implementation, it might some sort of deviate from it. So therefore, the cultural sensitivity training for teachers and for students to have... Uh, uh, embrace diversity, they should have uh, on and off, you know, multicultural education or uh, DEI education in their, in their value education or in, uh, or in other activities from time to time so that these students or these teachers, when they are looking after these students, they have uh, that acceptance, respect and appreciation of uh, different cultures. Rizwan Ola, you, 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 tell us what happens at your school, your vice principal yourself. I mean, um, how do you do, do these kind of situations ever arise? How do you handle them? Well, I mean, it's very straightforward. Uh, we, we review our, our rules uh, every year. And then when we have students, uh, they have some special requests, we will communicate with the parents and then uh, work out things uh, that is, you know, do not detriment uh, their religious belief, like let's say if a Muslim student, if they grow facial hair, we'll tell them to grow in a way which is neat and tidy and which is acceptable. And if we don't understand, we will talk to the religious leaders and try to understand more about it. And so that when we sit down with parents, we understand why we are making this accommodation and things like that. Separately, uh, apart from rules, we will also find activities to to educate our students and let them know more about the diverse race and some of their customary beliefs and practices. So uh, in this way, we can get our society really inclusive and really, you know, get kids together and understand, oh, these, these dilemmas and all these yes. different things, why, why, why this and that. Right. And Rizwan, is that, on a, um, is that um, handled on a school-by-school school basis? So every separate school has its own process? 
Well, because uh, I'm just wondering what went wrong <laughs> in this case. Bureau, uh, Education Bureau has uh, uh, administrative guidelines for school when they set rules. There are procedures uh, and suggested protocols for schools to follow. But when it comes to implementation, you know, sometimes rules would not be written in a very rigid, minute way, like, oh, in this scenario, you should do this. Uh, sometimes they tend to be a little open. And then when it comes to interpretation of how you enforce the rules and how you implement the rules, this is the area where it requires, you know, some level of uh, pragmatism and expertise. Uh, because the key thing, as I go back to what I said earlier, rules in schools are not there to punish students, but to make them more self-disciplined and understand different rules and regulations so that they can be part of a community uh, within that establishment. Okay, thank you very much. I, so, yeah, uh, uh, one of our other guests wants to join in uh, just now. So, yes. Uh, yeah, Edward, Edward Vickers, uh, you're right? You're referring to me. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I'd just like to say that, I mean, we're, I think perhaps we're being a little bit charitable when we're assuming that this um, case arises from ignorance rather than any sort of anti-Muslim animus. Uh, you know, and I, and I think certainly we shouldn't assume that that it, it, it's a case of sort of active anti-Muslim prejudice. But at the same time, I think we need to recognize that there is an undercurrent of anti-Muslim rhetoric out there on social media uh, or, or indeed in the mainstream uh, media. Uh, and this, you know, this is something we see worldwide, certainly in the West, uh, in America, in parts of Europe. Uh, but we also see it in China, uh, you know, and there's there's this is something that that is is there on social media in China. But it's also and again, as in many other countries, unfortunately, it's something that official rhetoric often contributes to. Um, and within Hong Kong specifically, there is a history of quite, you know, unpleasant prejudice against South Asian minorities, whether on religious or racial grounds. Uh, so I think that's something that we need to face up to. And although it may not be a factor in this specific case, uh, you know, I think these are influences or legacies that should be acknowledged. Let's take those comments and go back to uh, Mervyn Chung. Mervyn Chung, are, are, are there broader sort of um, almost racial prejudices at work here? What's your view? Well, it, it's not too obvious, but uh, of course, uh, a greater proof, you know, for understanding in, in this direction is, uh, is certainly needed. Now we can see that the Home Affairs Bureau of the of the SAL government is promoting inclusive interactions among different social groups, uh, quite often on, uh, on 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 the radio and, and TV. And uh, in this spirit, the schools of students and parents from widely different uh, backgrounds should work conscientiously to reach, reach this end that is attaining um, inclusiveness and also accommodation among the students, regardless of their, 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 their social, economic, and, and, and also uh, racial backgrounds. And um, mm -hmm. yes, I think if there is uh, this kind of um, misinformation spread, uh, being spread through, through the uh, media platform, etc., regarding um, perceptions of um, a Muslim commu uh, community, uh, well, maybe the government can, can also uh, tailor make some kind of a promotion program 
um, uh, uh, targeting and, and improve the understanding, uh, uh, well, in, in, in this uh, direction. <clears throat> So the government is already doing it. Or maybe uh, we're just coming up to the news, uh, but Azal Marwa, if you want to quickly respond. Yeah, I, I think it's a, uh, it might not be very constructive to be asking about uh, prejudice from people who haven't ex- experienced it. Uh, no offence to, to Mervyn. Um, I, I certainly, myself, uh, those members of my family and friends who are Sikhs, Muslims, uh, belong particularly to the South Asian community, we experience... Uh, discrimination outward and subtle quite regularly we are denied uh, rental in housing we're I've I've been told personally to go home even though go back to my home country even though I was born here in Hong Kong Um, I remember one member senior member of the legal community early in my career introducing me as a terrorist because I have a beard and I have a Muslim name um, this kind of prejudice, it certainly exists. This is an important point. That's on Marwa, and we will continue this after the news, but we are going to have to just uh, take a short break for the news uh, at the moment, and uh, we will say goodbye uh, to um, uh, Rizwan Ula from uh, Law Tingpong uh, sec- Secondary School, who's been joining us. But our other guests will stay on, and uh, do let us know your thoughts on this topic. A lot of uh, comments coming from listeners will get to this after the news. Backchat at RTHKRHK, an email address or face- on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. The weather forecast is going to be mainly fine, very hot and dry during the day, apart from isolated showers. However, the number standby signal number one is now up. Uh, temperature currently 30 degrees, relative humidity 60%. It's 9.30. Here's Haley Yip with the news. A 17-year-old man will appear before Eastern Magistrates Court this morning to face a charge of wounding after two security officers were attacked with a knife outside the central government offices. European Union leaders have welcomed an agreement between member states on asylum and irregular migration. The deal will mean countries are assigned a quota of refugees to take in. Those that don't want to will be required to pay other nations to take their share. And Saudi Arabia has announced its bid to host the 2034 World Cup. The Saudi Football Federation said it intended to deliver a world-class tournament. It's the Gulf Kingdom's latest step in turning itself into a global sporting destination. World football's governing body FIFA earlier announced that the next World Cup will be held across six countries on three continents. I'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. Carers have been taking dedicated care of family members in need round the clock. I'm so exhausted. Can someone help? People around carers could lend a hand to support and ease their burden. Families, neighbors, and our society can build a carer-friendly community. Let's help carers take a break and show our support. Carers in need may call the designated hotline for carer support, subvented by the Social Welfare Department, 182-183. I am the Little Great, and I'm here to alert citizens to scams. When you shop online, stay alert to scams. When you date online, stay alert to scams. And when you receive calls from unknown numbers, stay alert to scams. I never get tired of reminding. I love reminding my family and people around me to stay alert to scams. Ending deception starts with you. Remind those around you. If you come across any suspected scams, call the Police Anti-Scam Helpline at one 
Welcome back to Back Chat. I'm Danny Giddings. Your guest presenter this morning is Rainbow Leung. In the second half of the show, we're going to be uh, continuing our discussion about religious sensitivity in local schools on the on the back of that case at a um, school in Ting Shui Wai where uh, the, stu- the Muslim students were asked to either remove their beards or face uh, demerits, although the school uh, later uh, backtracked and said that this had been a misunderstanding. Um, later on in the uh, show, we're going to be talking about yesterday's light rail collision. That's the second such case in two months. And just towards the end of the show, Jamie Clark will be join us with the latest on the Asian Games. Um, uh, if you have any thoughts on any of these topics, do email us at backchatterrthk.hk. That's backchatterrthk.hk. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. Our guests, as we continue the discussion, still with us, Mervyn Chung, the chair of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Organization, Professor Edward Vickers, Professor of Comparative um, Education at uh, Kyosho University in Japan, uh, and in our Queensway studio, Azan Marwa, a Hong Kong barrister who successfully campaigned for Sikh lawyers to uh, keep their turbans. Uh, before we turn to our guests, let me bring in some of those comments that are coming through from listeners, a, a, a lot of listener feedback this morning. Uh, Henry says, I guess the case of the beard is due to a lack of cultural education, cultural sensitivity and contact with people of different nationalities. I guess teachers or principals learn little about people of different ethnic races in their schools and this has led to the attitude displayed in this case. I remember I was in an English school in the 1960s with schoolmates from India, Philippines, UK, US. We were at peace with beards, turbans, different accents, etc. of different races. Hong Kong is an international city with people of ethnic races and people who should respect different races and their cultures. Government is doing too little to make people mix with, say, Pakistanis, Africans, Arabs. This does not look good when Hong Kong wants to play this, this kind of a role. Uh, s- schools should do study tours for students to countries like Jordan, Africa and Latin America and mix with locals, not in five-star hotels, but homestays or accommodation for students and backpackers where they can meet people from different countries. Uh, interesting comment from Ilnor. Ilnor says, well... In fact, it's not mandatory for Muslim students to wear beards in schools. Islamic teachings vary and and beliefs about beards differ among Muslims. Schools have grooming policies for all students, but they should be sensitive to religious practices and make reasonable accommodations. If conflicts arise, schools can discuss solutions with students and their families. By the end of the end, wearing a beard is a personal choice and schools should balance religious practice with their policies. And finally, just one more listener comment for the moment. TC says, uh, I don't think cultural insensitivity is just limited to schools. It's just a reflection of the broader societal problem in Hong Kong. Look at the views that uh, uh, some views Hong Kongers have towards ethnic minorities. For example, the terms used for Filipinos and South Asians. Uh, Do their behaviours suggest cultural sensitivity? That is partly why I have very little sympathy whenever I hear the Chinese community in Canada and Western countries complain about being discriminated. Thank you very much to our listeners for those comments. Uh, I I want to jump to the other end of the spectrum and ask Edward Vickers, who's the Professor of Comparative Education at Kyushu University. Um, Edward, um, you might have seen the news. There was a French ban on a a bias last month. What what do you take, you know, what's your views on what's happened there as as compared to, you know, the situation in Hong Kong? Well, um... Yeah, I, I would say compared to France, Hong Kong can perhaps hold its head up. Um, I mean, <laughs> France has a very difficult, um, you know, history of trying to deal with multiculturalism and um, you know, religious diversity, uh, not just in education, but in, in sort of public spaces generally. 
Uh, and the general view is that um, France has been rather less successful than countries like uh, Britain when it comes to integrating its minorities. Uh, because, it, I mean, it, it insists on a sort of civic vision of French identity and citizenship, which is meant to be secular, which is meant to be religiously neutral. But it's been pointed out fairly, I think, that, that you know, the, the, the values and assumptions on which this sort of civic notion of Frenchness are based, are, you know, reflect um, the sort of underlying culture, mainstream culture of France, which you know, is, is, is still very much, you know, Judeo-Christian, uh, um, European, and that therefore immigrants from North Africa, Muslim immigrants are um, sort of inherently marginalized uh, from that sort of civic vision of Frenchness. Um, I'd, I'd like to say, you know, one thing, picking up on comments by Azan Mawa uh, on discrimination in Hong Kong, as, as he's experienced it, and 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 also on the on the sort of messages that the Hong Kong government is putting out, and you know it's been pointed out that the government has a responsibility to, um, in a sense, educate the public, uh, not just in schools but more broadly about the importance of um, you know respect for, for people for, for people of different cultures and religions. But in this respect, I think we're seeing sharply contradictory messages coming from. The government in Hong Kong, because on the one hand, there's this talk of Hong Kong as an international city, you know, Hong Kong as a city where people of different cultures and religions can get along, um, are you know, are, are sort of mutually tolerant. But at the same time, and increasingly in recent years, there's a very strong emphasis on Hong Kong as Chinese, and on Hong Kong's culture essentially as Chinese and on Chinese culture as meaning this, this, this and this. And that is inevitably going to, um, uh, at least in the eyes of many people, reinforce the marginal status of people who don't conform to that rather homogenous, monolithic, totalizing vision of Chineseness, which is for most people inherently ethnic as well as cultural. Uh, and and, and the, the official rhetoric reflects that. Okay, we're talking about uh, relig religious sensitivity in local schools. And um, if you have any thoughts, you can always call us on 233-88-266. And uh, Mark has called us. Um, caller Mark, good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. Good morning. Just a short comment. I think the rules should be made by the EDB, the Education Bureau, saying that certain religions like the Muslim religion and the Sikh religion, they have their own dress code. So... Uh, these should be allowed as exceptions in in, in, in any schools. So the, the 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 rules shouldn't come from the principals or the supervisor. It should come from the education bureau. Okay, thank you very much, Mark. That's a very interesting suggestion. Let, let's put that to Mervyn Cheung. Mervyn Cheung, yes. ch chair of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Organisation. Should the EDB be making more, more rules in this area? Uh, yes, but uh, maybe there should be. Um, further consultations with the school, uh, with school and uh, parental communities uh, in, in this respect. Uh, now, basically, in schools, um, people get, a, uh, I think the students themselves get along quite well 
without uh, major incidents, uh, you know, having been reported uh, in, in a kind of big troubles over the years. So um, as long as we have um, instilled a, a great understanding in, in, in the minds of our students and, and as uh, our speakers have just said, uh, in, the, in the broader community, um, uh, the chance of getting into trouble should, should become uh, uh, smaller and smaller. But of course, in this case, I think the, the school management has heard it because uh, basically um, it has been uh, you know, uh, uh, emphasized in, 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 in all uh, official remarks. The first interest um, in education must go to students themselves. And in, in, in any case, there should not be this kind of uh, uh, giving demerits to, to students just because they, they have kept this. I think uh, that's, uh, that's uh, totally in, in contrary to, um, to the educational interest uh, which the school should, 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 level, should level up that. And uh, so I think um, uh, the EDB should look into the situation and the lesson so 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 obtained it um maybe some kind of a, um corrective education or a bigger push in, in this kind of um uh, cultural and minorities education should be provided in schools and also in other community centers uh, with a major impact uh, on on a younger generation and mervyn do you know that whether um the education bureau is gonna is there going to be an official investigation into this by the education bureau or inquiry because obviously something went wrong in this case i think mostly uh, if there is anything wrong people would uh, turn their attention to the eoc the equal opportunities commission uh maybe some kind of a, a close departmental um working group of community uh, com committee can be set up involving say the edb the um, the social uh, social welfare department and and also the the EOC, so that they can approach the issue uh, on a more comprehensive scale and and with a, a, a broader angle. Uh, as well, Marwa is shaking his head yeah. in our Queen's Road studio. You did talk about uh, limitations for the Equal Opportunities Commission right at the, uh, the start of the show, right? Uh, the, the simple truth is, it would be great if the EOC's mandate were explicitly expanded to dealing specifically with religious discrimination. That would be great. In fact, I would go further than that and say it is the obligation of the government to prevent private discrimination uh, on grounds of re uh, religion. Except, I must add this, and I'm being a bit of a lawyer here, schools, particularly public schools, they exercise public authority. They are actually bound by the uh, constitutional requirements on equality. They, uh, despite what Rizwan said, which is partly true about the lack of a uh, religious provision in the RDO, schools already have the obligation not to discriminate on grounds of religion. That comes out of Articles 1 and 22 of the Hong Kong Bill of Rights and Article 25 of the Basic Law. Now, the trouble is that the EDB is really supposed to coordinate this policy and they they do need to work on it but i would say that the issue here isn't just a consultation they need to they need to be spending resources on sharing actual practices how to implement rizwan kept em emphasizing how do we implement and I've seen how other organizations do it. They, they have sharing sessions. I went to one last night um, between different banks. The banks get together and say, well, how can we improve our equality and diversity policies? 
That's what the EDB should be doing. They should be coordinating, not just issuing a policy document, not just having a consultation, but actually helping schools implement this policy. The RDO, which you referred to, is, of course, the Race Discrimination Ordinance, isn't it? Sorry. Yes, yes. <laughs> I swim in acronyms all, my, all day We have long. to be careful with too yeah. many lawyers on the panel. The key point is that doesn't uh, directly protect against religious discrimination. I mean, you can argue right. that it can be indirectly protected, but certainly right. not directly. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, we're, we're almost at the end of discussion of, on this section, but um, Ed, Ed, Edward Vickers, any closing thoughts? I mean, this has been an interesting debate, hasn't it? Um, yes. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, if I have anything to, to add to what I've already said, um, you know, except that I, I, I do think there is a, a, you know, a tension in public culture in Hong Kong today between... Uh, uh, you know, a desire in, in some respects to emphasize Hong Kong's continuing status as a, an international city welcoming to, you know, people of all backgrounds and religions and this emphasis on a sort of um, essentially Chinese identity. Uh, and when we talk about discrimination, we, we, we also need to consider the sort of, you know, institutional aspects of discrimination. And I was working in Hong Kong in a Buddhist school, actually, in the 1990s, at the time when uh, Hong Kong returned to China. And I remember very well how, um, you know, at a very fundamentally institutional level, South Asians, many of the Muslims, uh, people of South Asian extraction in Hong Kong, were very clearly sort of ostracized or excluded from uh, the concept of, you know, who, who, is, who really belongs in Hong Kong. Uh, they were not granted the right to get Hong Kong passports by, um, you know, the incoming regime. Uh, I remember uh, Haider Barma, the secretary for, for transport in the mid 1990s, had to step down yes. because uh, he was. He's yeah, not, he, not, was, he, he wasn't was, a Chinese national and uh, the requirement was no. to be a Chinese national to hold these, these positions. <laughs> Very good memory yeah. there, Professor Vickers. Uh, sorry, I'm going to have to draw this uh, discussion to a uh, close. So we've already gone past the, the last slot, but a very interesting discussion indeed. So uh, thank you very much uh, to our guests in uh, this, uh, this discussion this morning. Uh, our guest continuing the discussion after 9.30 was uh, Professor Edward Vickers. You just heard he's Professor of Comparative uh, Education at Kyoshi University in Japan. And also um, remaining with us in the second half of the show was uh, Azan Ma who's a Hong Kong barrister, and uh, Mervyn Cheung, who's the chair of the uh, Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Organisation. I'll give the last word on this topic to one of our listeners, uh, Mike. Mike says, some government's biggest fears are people with beliefs. It doesn't ma even matter what those beliefs are. If the state power isn't the first thing in their heart, then they feel threatened. Now, you just can't stand and we can move from the symptoms of an illness to the real disease. Then you have your answer to why, how we can attract people back to Hong Kong. Do think about that. It might be the last time to discuss these real issues. Thank you very much, Mike, and do stay with us. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. There was yet another accident on the light rail transit uh, yesterday. Uh, it was a minor collision. Uh, three people were injured. Uh, fortunately, no serious injuries. But uh, these, thing, these, these accidents do seem to be happening with um, uh, quite, quite some frequency. To, so to join us to discuss whether there is a uh, fundamental issue here with the light rail transit, we're very pleased to have on back chat, I think, for the first time, uh, Dennis Ho. Dennis Ho is a railway researcher, and he's the founder of uh, Panut to Dock Creations, which documents uh, Hong Kong railway events and histories. 
So anyone qualified to talk about this is Dennis. Good morning, Mr. Ho. Welcome to Back Chat. <laughs> good morning. Yeah, good morning. Why, let's, let's, just, let's just put it in general terms. Why are there so many accidents involving the LRT? The accidents, they, they do happen, I believe, is because of the human factors. So is all human control. There's a relatively fewer restrictions or protection systems on the LRT than on the heavy rail. So there's, there's light rail and the opposite is the heavy rail. So the system operates quite differently. And I believe because like they, they are uh, aware enough and then they just can't see the special trains on the different platforms. So they're not aware enough and then they just crashed. This is it's this... not the first time. And then the same as the last time uh, in July, uh, because there is a change in platform operation, so they did not get aware enough, and then they crash into another train. So my understanding of what happened this time is that the two trains pulled out from the depot at the same time, and they crash crashed at an intersection. Now, was that a blind spot? I mean, I'm just wondering, because I saw a photo in the press of the two cars together. I mean, how on earth could the drivers not see each other? Uh, it's actually in Yunlong Terminal, and then the train, one train is in passenger service, and the other on the rightmost platform is actually ah. a spare platform and a spare train. So maybe the uh, the driver on the uh, passenger service train just didn't get aware, and then he just departed from the platform without realizing there should be a non-passenger train on the right. So, because, so uh, normally speaking, uh, because normally speaking, the departure is all done by timetable. So when the drivers mm -hmm. uh, realize it's about time, he just departs or he just gives way. But then normally there shouldn't be a non-passenger service train. So he didn't realize that and ju he just crashed. He was in a rush. Uh, is it also an issue of a lack of signaling in those areas? Yes, definitely. It's very interesting that um, signaling are very different in ART than in heavy rail. So there are signal lights mostly on road junctions or terminal entrance, but for some junctions, passing signals on my side, that means like, it's not a green signal, but then it's sort of like the proceed signal on my side, may not mean the red signal on the other side, so the other track. So even if I get a green signal, I have to ensure that I'm safe to pass. It comes back for to example, you... if there's a turnout, Please continue. And I was just going to say, it comes back to almost what you were saying at the beginning, right? It seems like we, we take less precautions when it comes to the air. Mm -hmm. we, we, we take uh, safety on the, um, sort of the MTR proper and the East Rail very seriously, but you're kind of saying that we don't have quite the same level of attention to um, safety precautions on the LRT. Is that right? Uh, it may be hard to say because it operates really differently. So LRT is all about... Uh, running on site, so you, you you look at the signal lights and then you drive manually. But then there are a lot of protection systems, and then it's automatic on the heavy rail. So it's really different. Uh, and do, do you know? I, I know I know that we've rotated out the old uh, Japanese-made uh, uh, trains, and we're now using the new batch of the Chinese-made uh, cars. So do do you know these these new cars have an alert system? Or better alert system? I, I'm not too sure about the, the the system, but then as far as I know. Uh, all of the trains should in, uh, should have the same uh, warning system. I've just done a little bit of research. There's a warning system called ISPS. It detects the train speed and location by GPS, so as to avoid overspeed, missing stations, or passing red lights. But it's just a warning system, not the auto braking or anti-collision device, mm. because I believe it's a separate system. So it's 
it's not linked to the train directly due to complexity. So it maybe it's a very small computer. It monitors the situation, but then it just gives reminders, but not actual stopping action. So it's very different from heavy rail. Meanwhile, uh, in heavy rail, the, the MTR trains have a lot of protection. If you get over speed or you get a passing red signal, you just get stopped. There's again, you're it's saying very different. It, it's very different from heavy rail. Heavy rail, there are a lot more protective devices, but LRT, because it's a different sort of system, uh, you don't have the same level of protective devices, right? Is it, is it more fair to compare them with trams? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Actually, oh, colloquially speaking, we call light rail as trains, but then actually they're just trams, rather high-speed trams. <laughs> so we should call them trams as well, right? High-speed high, high trams. Um, I mean, it's always a bit curious, I mean, why we ever got the light rail transit in the um, just this one area in Hong Kong. They, they, it was a long time ago, wasn't it? Back in, I think, the 80s, so they, they decided to build uh, yeah, the system. But you could say maybe it's, it's not terribly suited for a um, busy city environment like Hong Kong to have that kind of system. Well, that's a very long story. Actually, back in the days, like even the trams in, in Hong Kong Island, they actually tried to uh, get bit into the system. So they want to operate the, 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 the light rail in anti, uh, new territories. But then in the end, they got it into KCR and eventually MTR. And then, of course, uh, back in the days, like in the 80s, there were a lot of accidents just bef before the opening of the system. So, Okay, and we, we've never thought about having similar systems elsewhere in Hong Kong, right? Yeah, there may be quite some, but it's hard to say. <laughs> a long story, long history, so it's hard to remember. Okay. Well, well I, I, I'm just thinking. It sounds like you know, um, system. You know, we don't. It, it, you know, it, we're still heavily reliant on drivers um, to, to, to properly yeah. operate the, the vehicle. Um, so, so it, it, I mean, it's happened twice, and it, it seems I, I'm, I'm, you know, it has happened twice. So, f fairly frequent. So, what does that say about the training that these drivers are getting? Yeah, I, I, I can talk more about the, the signaling or like how they operate. So I just mentioned like the, there are signal lights on road junctions or terminal entrance, but then like passing a, a perceived signal doesn't mean a red signal on other tracks. So yeah, it's, it's that interesting. So the driver has to be extra cautious when passing and then make sure other trains are not crossing. And then there is even no signaling light for some terminal exits or junctions. So driver has to use the blinker lights okay. just like cars and then get out and then even drivers have to obey specific giveaway rules in terminals or some light rail only junctions just like the terminals in Yunlong or like Tumun uh, Ferry Pier so okay. uh, yeah. for example they have to give way to trains on your right on the right platform before departing terminal so okay. in these two cases they, <laughs> they, they fail to obey this rule because like maybe they are not aware there are special trains or special platform operations and then they just Okay. Mr. and crashed. That's very interesting. Thank you very much. That's all we've got time for on this topic. But uh, that was Dennis Ho, a railway researcher and founder of uh, Panute.Creations on uh, the uh, latest uh, LRT accident. Now let's find out what happened at the Asian Games yesterday. Joining us, as always, is sports correspondent Jamie Clark. Well, welcome back again, Jamie. Good right? Thank so, you. Thank um, you. Let's look at the medals total first, because it's pretty good, isn't it, right? Hong Kong has beaten its total, or at least in overall medals, has mm. beaten its total for the last Asian Games. Where are we at now, and how high can we get? Yeah, so, yeah, the previous record was 46. They achieved that in 2018, so we passed that, surpassed that yesterday. We're now on 50. Um, wow. yeah. Less gold still at the moment, right? Yes, so 2018 we had eight golds, 18 silvers, and this time round we're on seven golds, 15 silvers. So there's, st there's still a chance, though. So we, still need a a, we need another gold, We right? need another gold, yeah. <laughs> 
best and who's our best shot for another gold? Well, today we're guaranteed at least a silver today um, because Simi, uh, sorry, Simi Chan is in the gold medal match in bad, uh, squash, um, the women's single squash. So she has a chance. She will either get a silver or a gold. We're guaranteed that today. Uh, Do we yeah. know what time that is today? Or? That will be later tonight. Yeah, oh, later, okay, th- later yeah. this evening. Uh, she knocked out Hote Lok in... Hong Kong's Hotel Lock yesterday. Um, so yeah, that meant Hotel Lock got one of one of three bronzes yesterday. Yeah, because these events taking place all day. Sometimes you come on the show and you don't. There's already been a medal, right? And yes, other times yes. You have to wait until late at night, so it, it could be very frustrating. They're long days. Yes, we yeah, long days. Every, across three of us, we're trying to keep on top of what's happening across the day. Okay, how about yesterday's medals? How about uh, cycling, right? Yeah, so, so Yang Chan Yu got a gold in the women's road race in cycling. That's a 139.7 kilometer race. So yeah, she had a a cycle of three hours and 36 minutes uh and she she pipped defending gold medalist now our room of south korea at, at, at the at the at the finish line they were ne- they were right finished neck and neck right close to each other um yeah there was a delay in in um them announcing the final results but yeah she won gold she of course has already won bronze in the team's pursuit silver in the women's madison so she has a, a clean sweep of bronze silver and gold um and yeah she she's set to retire now so yeah what an exciting games for her and squash you've already mentioned, right? Uh, yes. Squash you mentioned for today, but there were medals yesterday, right? Yes. So, yeah, like I said, Jose Lot got one of three bronze medals yesterday. There was also bronze in the mixed doubles for Wong Chi Him and Lee Kai And um, Henry Lung won a bronze in the men's singles. And, yeah, there's that uh, final match today. Uh, Simi is against Malaysia's Subranran Sivi Sangari. She won silver in 2018. So that's a tough opponent, but you never know. So that's squash we've got to watch today. Mm. And then badminton also to watch today, you're already saying, right? Yeah, so badminton, yeah. The, the medals for badminton, silver medals, to, uh, sorry, semi-finals are tomorrow. Uh, bronze medals are tomorrow, gold medals the day after that. But the quarterfinals are today, and there's some exciting... Uh, athletes for Hong Kong. The mixed doubles pair of Chang, Tang Chun-man and Tse Ying Shu, they won silver at the Hong Kong Open last month. So they've got a, a strong chance of winning something in, in the next few days. They're, they're uh, against Japanese opponents today. Um, we've also got people in the men's doubles and the women's doubles in the quarterfinals today. So yeah, well, there's multiple badminton opportunities for medals in badminton, yes. isn't there? Yes, and there's, yes. Uh, still karate as well, right? Yeah. So the karate competition starts today. We've just had uh, Chris Cheng in the opening rounds of the men's kata. He finished third in round one and second in round two, so he's qualified for the bronze medal round. That will be again later tonight. Um, and in the women's kata. Grace Lau won bronze in 2018. She's just doing her preliminary rounds right now. Um, and then, yeah, hopefully she'll be in with a chance for a medal tonight as well. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's at least p- potentially three. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot more. A lot more exciting. Some of the, the game started at the beginning of last week. How, how much longer have we got to go now? We've got till uh, Sunday. Sunday's the closing ceremony. There's maybe two events on Sunday that also have medals, um, medals matches. But yes, everything will start to ease down on come Saturday night. Um, but yeah, also, I mean, there's also the men's men's road races today. Um, so yeah, hopefully there's a 
four Hong Kong cyclists trying to replicate uh, Yang Chan Yu's gold from it's yesterday. Exciting stuff as always. Uh, that's uh, our sports correspondent uh, Jamie Clark, who's doing sterling service uh, on RTHK and on Backchat every day by uh, telling us about the latest in the Asian Gold. So we'll keep our fingers crossed for um, more medals today. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us, and thank you, of course, uh, to my guest presenter uh, Rainbow Lung. Uh, Backchat will be back tomorrow with Andrew Work is back on Backchat with Philip Wong. So join us tomorrow. RTHK, the news at 10 with Haley Yip. A 17-year-old man will appear before Eastern Magistrates Court this morning to face a charge of wounding after two security